Chapter Fifteen of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter Fifteen. Secrecy Farm. I installed Peter behind a gorse bush on the heath, instructing him how to find the house should I be away for more than a couple of hours, and then I started off. Secrecy Farm lies in a backwater of Hampstead down a road that cheats you for a few hundred yards into thinking you are in the country, until you find it melts drearily into some wasteland, dug up for building, and hideous with piles of crudely coloured bricks. The road is shaded by elms instead of the ubiquitous plane trees of cities, and though dust-filmed, it is true, pink campion and strong rank hemlock grow along the hedges. The road humps itself into a bridge over a sluggish little canal, on whose muddy brown waters float little patches and threads of creamy scum. And by this canal, the length of a field from the road, stands Secrecy Farm. As I drew near I saw that nailed to the palings was a notice-board inscribed in big white letters on a black ground, with these words, Secrecy Farm this desirable freehold with four and a half acres of land, to be sold. Apply Horton and Jenks, Golders Green. My heart sank. It did not seem as though our cause would benefit much by this expedition. But I opened the gate and approached the house. It is a low white building, or rather once was white, but now was defaced by long meandering green stains, Several panes of the small windows were broken. The woodwork, long unpainted, had turned a soft peacock blue color, and the weeds grew long and lank in the strip of ground between the house and the field. I walked round to the back, where I knew the main door was. I was greeted by a perfect storm of barking from two dogs, one chained a little way down the garden and the other at the further end of the house. They tugged at their chains like demons, and I prayed the links might hold as I stood and surveyed the scene. Secrecy Farm had been ramshackle when I had first known it. It was far more so now. To the left of the door was a flight of wooden steps that led to a sort of little railed platform, on to which a French window opened. I remembered how incongruous that window had always struck me as being. It introduced what was somehow a sinister note of modernity. As I looked at it now, I thought I saw a slight movement behind the curtained panes in the decrepit old house, and I turned towards the garden. That showed signs of fairly recent care. A tall row of scarlet runners leant from their supporting sticks. Beyond them I caught sight of a strip of cabbages, showing a cold blue-green beside the dark coppery red of some beetroot leaves. Beyond that again, a rick of dull sad-coloured hay blocked any further view. Against it an elevator was leaning, and the wind rattled it in all its iron joints, so that it sounded like the clanking of a ghostly chain. I turned to the house again and knocked with the ash-stick I carried against the door. 
At first nothing but the renewed fury of the dog's barking answered me. Then I heard an inner door open softly. I knocked again, and this time a hesitating step shuffled down the passage. Then the door was opened a few inches, and I caught the gleam of an extraordinarily bright pair of eyes. "'Ah, it is you, Mrs. Murdoch,' I said. "'Don't you remember me?' She opened at that, and Mrs. Murdoch stood before me. She, like the farm, was very much as I remembered her, only more so. Her hair had gone very thin above her high forehead, which gave her something of a vulture look. Her yellow old face was extraordinarily wrinkled, but as she recognized me her smile made all the wrinkles break up and run into wide curves, like the circles made by a stone in a pool. "'Why, it's Miss Viv!' she exclaimed, and I thought I noted something besides pleasure in her voice. Relief. "'I happened to be in London again,' I said, and I thought I'd look you up. May I come in?' "'Eh, what?' she asked, leaning forward. "'I've gone very hard of hearing, my dear.' I repeated my question with a shout. "'Why, well, yes, come in, dearie,' she then answered and indeed I had already stepped into the narrow passage. I saw the paper was peeling in damp patches off the wall, and the boards were bare, while Mrs. Murdoch herself was wrapped in an old magenta shawl that trailed in a moth-eaten triangle from her back. "'Let me see, this was the sitting-room father and I used to have,' I exclaimed, my hand on the door of the room which gave on to the little balcony. I must just look in, and before she could stop me I had turned the handle. Rather to my surprise it yielded, and I looked in, to see Edgar Murdoch standing in the middle of the room, which was quite unfurnished save for the curtains over the window. That he was Mr. Murford I had no doubt, now I had set eyes on him again, in spite of the fact that he was wearing a dark pointed beard which must, of course, be false. "'Why, how do you do?' I exclaimed mechanically, holding out my hand. It was not until he had taken it, and I felt how cold his was, that the full realization of what I was doing flashed through me. This was Mrs. Murdoch's son, and Mrs. Murdoch had, in her queer, brusque, half-shamed way, been very kind to father and myself in the old days. I had been counting on that old kindliness of hers in coming there that afternoon, and I had been wont to help Edgar to construe Marcus Aurelius in the original. Uncertain and devious as he was, in many disconcerting ways he had a kind of brilliance, and now to track down Mrs. Murdoch's son was impossible. I suppose the excitement of the thing, and the fact that Mrs. Murdoch herself had not entered into my calculations, had prevented me seeing clearly before. Anyway, once having presented myself as a friend, and being welcomed as such, I had made myself powerless. After all, it was not my business how dishonest Edgar Murdoch had been. And yet, there on the heath was Peter, Peter, who, if he could bring off this scoop, 
would be in a fair way to success in Fleet Street. I felt a profound distaste for the whole affair, and I wanted time to think. Mrs. Murdoch broke in on the little silence. Well, since you've taken all the trouble to come out here, she said, in her still brisk and harsh old voice, that had alarmed me so at first as a child, you must take a cup of tea with us. Edgar's grown a rich man and respected, as I always knew he would, so you'll have no call to mind sitting down with him. Come into the kitchen. There's a bit of fire there. I followed her into the kitchen, which was empty, save for a few chairs, a table, and a large wooden case with a wire-netting window, which stood against the blotched and discoloured wall. Behind the netting two ghost-pale ferrets leapt up and down, up and down, like wan reflections of the leaping firelight. "'You've only just caught us,' went on Mrs. Murdoch. "'We're flitting.' I suppose you saw the notice on the gate. Are you going far away? I asked. Only to, she was beginning, when her son struck in with a stentorian shout of, There's no milk in the house, you know, mother. Hadn't you better get some from the shop over the bridge? So I had, said Mrs. Murdoch, not heeding my protestations, for to break bread with her was the last thing I wanted just then. You must take a bit of something with us, Miss Viv, said Mrs. Murdoch firmly, and all the stocks sold off, unless you count the dogs and the ferrets. Thank ye, Eddie, for he had brought her a bonnet and a black cloth jacket, and was helping her into them. I don't let my gentleman son do my errands for me out of doors, so he pays his old mother out, by waiting on her in the house she added, trying to disguise her pride in the gloomy-looking Edgar. She let herself out at the back, and Edgar Murdoch, alias Mr. Murford, and I sat looking at each other from opposite sides of the hearth in the dim kitchen, where a twilight greenness reigned, owing to the great lilac and syringa bushes that had been allowed to grow up against the window. Suddenly Edgar cleared his throat and began to speak. "'Remember the old days, Miss Lovell?' he began. "'How your father used to go off to the British Museum, and how you used to do little sketches about the place. I still have one you did of the old duck and her ducklings in the sunlight. And you used to help me with my reading.' I nodded but could find nothing to say. How do you think the old lady's looking? he asked suddenly. Oh, I should have known her anywhere. But I don't think she looks very well. She's dying, he said harshly. What do you mean? What I say. The doctors give her a month or so at the outside. She's killed herself, for me. I'm taking her away, now I've found out to look after her for the last time we'll have together. You must have thought us in a bad way when you saw the house all bare and neglected, but it's merely that everything's sold. Even our own things are packed ready except just what we need for one more night. 
As far as money goes, it isn't a case of bad times, with her, thank goodness. And with you, it is, I said, the words slipping out before I knew. What do you mean? he asked sharply. Then I made up my mind. It seemed that the chief thing was to help the Murdochs, and I knew Peter would understand. I mean I know you're Mr. Murford. But I don't know why you did it. Eddie, why did you? You're not naturally dishonest, I know. There must be something at the back of it. Why should I trust you? he asked sharply. No, I didn't mean that. But why are you here? I, I came because I recognized you in the papers. I'm by way of being a journalist, and I was given the job. But I won't do anything that would hurt Mrs. Murdoch, if you'll tell me why you did it. You yourself have given the reason that's at the bottom of it all when you say her name. And she'll be back in five minutes, he added, glancing nervously at his watch. Five minutes to make you see my point of view. I'm listening. He did not begin at once, but sat with his false beard sunk on his chest, and I gazed at it in idle fascination, wondering how he made it look so natural. Then clasping the arms of his chair, he began, still looking into the fire. You remember how it was when I was a boy, how nothing was too good for me? Well, the time came for me to go out into the world and begin all those wonders she believed in. I started at your job, journalism. The old lady nearly died of pride when I used to come home and show her my press cuttings. They were only the usual things, murder reports and such like. But I had to read them all to her, because she can't read, you know. She used to sit and finger them. Then I got the sack. I was no good at the job, really. My education. She'd spent so much on it, herself as well as her money. It was no good. Snippets here and there. I was more cultured, hateful word, than most of the men on my rag, but I'd nothing I could turn to any use. I, too, had believed I was bound to do wonders. Getting the sack was a shock to me, but I told myself it must be that I was too good for them. At last I got on to another paper. I found it was a swindling sort of concern, flourishing chiefly by blackmail. I'd begun to realize by then that I'd no talent. Just a drifter, with wants above my station and no way, no honest way, of gratifying them. He paused, then took his gaze from the fire and let it rest on me. I'm trying to be honest with you. I am being honest. It wasn't only wanting things for myself. I couldn't bear her to know I was a failure, that I was cut out on a pattern bound to fail. It was partly pride, I couldn't have stood the mortification of it. But it was more than that. It was that I knew it would break her up entirely. So I kept on, on that paper. 
I always came down here to see her in a frock coat and a topper. She used to sit and just stroke that topper with the tips of her fingers as though it were a frightfully precious breed of Persian cat. She only lived for my visits and what I could tell her of myself. You don't know what a life of complete isolation hers is here. She has never known any of her neighbours. Why, do you think? Lest my precious career should be damaged by people knowing how I started, and that I had an illiterate working woman for a mother. Think of the incredible strength of her to keep to that all these years. Then I got hold of a sum of money, a few hundreds. My paper was a dishonest affair enough, but I cheated even my paper. I took the money to keep something out of it, and didn't let it know. Then I cut loose from it and told myself I'd start again. But there seemed nothing I could do. I could get no references for a clerkship or anything of that kind. And my mother kept on asking how I was getting on, when I was going to marry a lady. Then I must have been a bit mad. I decided to have a splash on my money and see what it would do for me. A rich marriage, perhaps. Sounds low, but you see I'd got sort of used to taking everything from a woman. I went to Fengate. Everyone liked me. I'm a taking kind of fellow. He said it bitterly, and I nodded, for it was true. There was a kind of glamour and charm about him. And what made you leave? Plan all that sham accident affair, I asked. Did your money come to an end? No, I've got a hundred left, though of course I owe practically everything there. But I got worried about my mother. I'd sent her snapshots of me out hunting and all that kind of thing from the local papers. But it was no good writing because she couldn't read it if I did. So every now and then I ran up to see her. She was taken bad once while I was here and I made her have a doctor. It's her heart, and it can't last out for more than a month or so. So I chucked everything. I couldn't leave openly. I should have had all my creditors after me. So I thought I'd arrange it so that they'd think I was killed. I mismanaged it owing to not knowing that little item about the tide and there's a hue and cry after me. I should be safe enough staying here, but I find she's already knowing about her heart. She'd made the doctor tell her the truth. She's already sold the furniture and put the place in the hands of an agent, so that I shall have as much as possible coming to me at her death, with no need to give myself away by having to make the arrangements. She's thought even of that. She couldn't have done it more carefully if she'd known I was a guilty man trying to hide. She was going into lodgings by herself. Of course I put my foot down. Luckily I have that hundred. That'll be quite enough to last her time and impress her with my riches. She need never know, if only I'm not caught. At that moment we heard the sound of a key in the back door, 
and Edgar got up to meet his mother and relieve her of the milk and buns she carried. He had certainly shown me his point of view. There was no doubt about that, and shown it so that I had no course but to aid him. We all had tea together, and as I sat and munched I gazed at that indomitable old woman and marvelled. If I had known everything then that I did after, known what a game of cross-purposes was being played in that kitchen, I should have marvelled the more. Meanwhile I was anxious to get away. It was past five o'clock by now, and Peter must be wondering what had become of me. He might even now be prowling round the house, a thing to be avoided at all costs. I stood up to go. I noticed that while I was making my farewells to Mrs. Murdoch, her son had left the room. When he entered again, he came towards me. I must see you alone for a minute, he said, too low for his mother's ears to catch. See me to the gate. No, I'd rather not let out my secrets in the garden. Come upstairs to her room, when she thinks you're gone and I'll speak to you. There's something I want you to see there. He pushed his mother gently into her chair by the dying fire, and bending over her said loudly, I'll see Miss Lovell off, mother, and then it's time we were toddling ourselves. You've nothing you need go upstairs again for, have you? No, but there's no call for us to go till tomorrow, she protested. We weren't starting till tomorrow. I've changed my mind. I don't think it's good for you to be in this damp old house a day longer. You leave everything to me. I'm in charge now. He smiled at her, and she gave him her grim, tender in spite of itself smile back again, and I took my leave. The kitchen door once shut behind us we crept silently, though owing to her extreme deafness there was no real need for caution, up the stairs, along the passage, and into a room at the far end. I wish to goodness my mother knew everything, he burst out. She's such a such a man. If only she weren't in this condition. But I couldn't tell her. It's been going on too long. I hate all this need for, for what I'm going to do. He was by the door as he spoke. When he finished he walked out and shut it behind him. I heard the key turn in the lock. Edgar! Edgar, I cried, and running to the door shook it violently. His voice, low and hurried, came from the other side. Read what I've left on the mantelpiece, he said urgently. Don't make a noise. She'll guess everything if she hears you. But she won't. It's no good making a noise. No one'll hear you till tomorrow when the workmen pass. I but read what I've written. His step went away down the passage, and with a reeling head I picked up the piece of paper that lay on the mantelpiece, and read as follows. I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I daren't trust you. 
You yourself said you were after me for your paper. This'll give me time to get her away. If you really are playing the game by us and care what happens to her, you'll forgive me for this and won't let on. E. M. End of chapter 15